Hi, I'm Brian from Dallas. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Thanks. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of young America. Maximum Fun, Maximum Fun, Maximum Fun. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is David Malky. Um, he is the creator of the webcomic strip Wonder Mark, which has recently been collected into its uh, first collection in, uh, with a major publisher, which is called Beards of Our Forefathers. The strip recontextualizes turn-of-the-century uh, engravings into what amounts to a gag strip with very contemporary themes. Um, oh, also, uh, unrelated, David Melky spells his name uh, with two spaces and an exclamation mark. Uh, David, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Hello, Jesse. Thank you for having me. Have you ever seen or the play or film A, a Thousand Clowns? You know, I have to say I'm not familiar with it. It was one of my favorites, and uh, uh, one of the key characters in this thing is a young man who didn't have a name when his mother ran out on him and left him with his uncle. And so his uncle allows him to, allows him to choose his own name mm -hmm. when he turns 13, and he goes through a variety of names and... There's one period when he says he just took regular names and add captain in front of them to spruce them up a bit. And I, and I was thinking of that when I was thinking of that exclamation mark on the end of your name. Um, was that the impetus just to give it a little more punch? Yeah, actually, that's, you've pretty much nailed it. I, I think if you just saw my name without the punctuation, you wouldn't give it a second thought. No, I wouldn't. And uh, I, I'm not the first guy to incorporate punctuation in his name. I do believe I may be the first to incorporate the single space after, you know, between my last name and the exclamation point. Okay, I see. So you're saying that while many other, while some other people may have put uh, an exclamation mark or even, I don't know, an interrobang at the end of their name. Sure, asterisk, anything. I'm not sure. I, I don't claim to speak for everybody. But, you, but do you speak for everyone with punctuation in their name? Um. Well, I haven't been to the meetings recently, so I, I, I don't think I'm still the acting director of Haley's Comet, for example. <laughs> As in a, right, with the apostrophe. Yeah. yeah. Um, did not pay the dues, actually, surprisingly, since, was it 1984? Was it? No, but in, in all sincerity, the, the, the traditional way to add punch to one's name is to make up a new name. Um, uh, another sure, comics sure, creator sure. on the program, uh, uh, Tony Millionaire, uh, he was on mm -hmm. the show six, six months or a year ago, now, I'm willing to bet that his mother and father weren't named Mr. and Mrs. Millionaire. Probably not. In fact, there are some syndicated comic strip creators, uh, for example, Bill Keen from the Family Circus. His name is spelled with one L um, when he's billed, but his, his birth name is you know, William, just like any other Bill. So he's taken a, a unique spelling. Uh, same thing with Dick Brown who, of Hagar the Horrible. He spells it D-I-K. Um, but there's not much you can do with David. Um, so I think punctuation was the logical next step. Did you ever consider sort of a Southern California weatherman type name, like Stormy Mountains or something? Stormy Mountain? No, <laughs> that would be good. Actually, uh, my wife's name is Rice, and my name being Malky. We we very seriously considered changing both of our names to Malice when we were married. Mm -hmm. David and Nikki Malice. But the problem is I had already by then branded myself with the exclamation point. I've been doing the comic for a number of years. 
And I thought it would be too much for people to swallow. It's like, this guy's doing another stupid thing with his stupid name. No, that's just enough. Right. One uh, thing at a time. Now, the, I'm, there, there are public radio program directors uh, across America now very cross with me for discussing your name before discussing your comic. As I mentioned in the introduction, the comic is recontextualized in engravings from turn-of-the-century periodicals, mostly, periodicals right. and books, right? Right. What led you to that style? Were you cartooning in the traditional style first? Yeah, I've always been a comics fan. I've always, um, you know, like anyone in high school or college, you know, who wants to be a cartoonist, they're always trying doing it, doing a bunch of different things. And I realized at one point that not only is there this amazing well of, of craftsmanship that's basically totally ignored by the world today. It's this whole art form that's been totally lost in the last century. Um, but also, these guys can make work that have already made work that looks better than I will ever do. And that's also all in, in the public domain. So it was sort of a perfect storm of being inferior and also see, seeing an opportunity where I could not only share uh, this great work with a new audience, but also make my own work look kind of cool too how did you come across it like were you just at the at the public library one day reading punch or something and you're like <laughs> this is fine craftsmanship you know, i never know this no there was um there have been clip art collections published by by dover and um you know dover is the company that publishes everything that has gone out of copyright and uh so there there are a number of collections they call them old-fashioned cuts of uh, these old woodcuts and engravings and so what i did was i i first started to use those I mean, they're just free clip art. But then I realized that everybody else that could buy a clip art book would have the exact same images, everyone from Trader Joe's to, you know, whoever. And so what I did was I, I looked up where they got their images. I went to the library here in Los Angeles, and I spent a long time looking in there. They have a massive periodicals index. And I figured out which titles uh, all these illustrations were coming from. And, you know, there was a, a, a huge call for illustrations back in the late 1800s because this was before photographs. And so if you ever wanted any illustration in a periodical, it had to be engraved. And so I figured out uh, which periodicals these illustrations were coming from, and I just started acquiring them on my own. And so now I have a whole collection of it that I hopefully are unique to my work and not published in a clip art book somewhere. Now, when you say acquiring them uh, on your own, uh, how, do you, how do you capture these images? Well, they're all scanned from the original books. The first couple times I went to the library, I took a camera and I, I photographed uh, on a long exposure uh, with no flash just pages from the books. And that was, it's okay for a while. But then when I started to decide that I wanted to, to put these on a scanner and get them at really high resolution and clean them up and make them look really nice, I just started looking around on eBay and other places for, for these particular titles. And what I found out was if I could get the books that had broken spines or bad covers that collectors didn't want, I could get them really cheaply. And so I have a bunch of books that smell like tobacco now or, you know, have pages missing or have kids that have colored through half of them. But the rest of the book is perfectly fine. And, you know, they become my raw materials for the comics. What are the titles? What are the periodicals that you're pulling from? Um, and there are, there's Harper's Weekly, which is still around now. Um, another contemporary of Harper's was Frank Leslie's Illustrated. And Leslie's and Harper's were both general interest periodicals with stories on art and fiction and history and politics and all sorts of um, diverse articles, which gave the illustrations a very diverse character. And then there's satirical works like Punch, like like you mentioned, which I have I have a great number of. Um, and there's a German contemporary of Punch called Fliegende Blutter, which has some really really weird stuff in it. Sure, Fliegen. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And um, 
so those are the ones that, uh, that I found first. And then since then, uh, for example, I had a fan mail me a whole box of Scientific Americans that his, he found in his boss's basement. And those are great. They have all kind of goofy gizmos and inventions in them. And they're all have a bunch of articles that are titled things like a new and improved bicycle. And it's like a bicycle that instead of the, the wheels being front to back, they're side to side. And it's like, this will take the world by storm. And there's all, all these sorts of things, uh, you know, in, in these crazy pages. And then the advertisements as well, you know, have, have all sorts of fun things of their own. Do they start to reveal themselves in themes? Like, do they, do they start to fall into categories in your mind as you look at thousands upon thousands of these pictures? You're talking about the illustrations yeah. in particular? Um, they do. And in fact, it's been interesting to sort of get into the mindset of, of Victorian era consumers in a certain way with all the little things that never made it through history that, you know, they were never significant enough for us to remember now but they were significant enough to get a brief mention in the weekly magazine 150 years ago. For example, there was a, there was a big craze apparently in the late 1850s called the mustache movement where everyone <laughs> everyone wanted to wear a mustache because they wanted to look like the soldiers that were fighting in Crimea. You know, Who were wearing wearing mustaches for military reasons. Right, naturally. Um, and so uh, there's, for example, in Punch, there's satirical cartoons of kids tramping after soldiers and the kids have a, a big drawn-on mustache and it's like, I'm going to be like a soldier too. And, you know, this hobo is getting made fun of because he can't grow a, a bushy enough mustache and, and that's this sort of thing. <laughs> um, so... It, it definitely is a little window into a different world, but at the same time, it's really cool to see that the problems that people were having are the same problems that we have today. And it's just, it's just human nature, the same way that Shakespeare is relevant nowadays. It's, it's, it's the same thing. So tell me about the relationship between your writing and these pictures. To, to what extent does the creative energy fly in which direction and, and what inspires you? Um, it's about 50-50 in terms of the writing coming first or the design coming first. And when I first started out, it was as simple as, let's get a couple goofy pictures and put them together and then figure out what they're saying to each other. And, and even still, sometimes it is like that. If, um, if I find some, some particular illustrations that I think would just have an interesting juxtaposition, I'll put them together and then try and figure out what's going on in that situation I've just created. I was just looking at one that featured a, a gentleman with a bayonet uh, and a, a big rifle with a bayonet and a tiny triceratops standing on the end yeah, of the bayonet. Right, exactly. Yeah, that was one where I had those two images separately and I thought, you know what, this would go really well right here. So what could they possibly <laughs> be talking about? And it's revealed in the strip that, of course, it's a murder plot. <laughs> um, Specifically, that the Triceratops has been uh, convincing the gentleman with the bayonet to commit murders. Right, which I think if anyone has ever conversed with a Triceratops in the middle of war, you know that they'll say anything. Right. So that happens, like I said, that's about half the time. And then over, over time, as I start to make you know, more and more comics, I find that my mind starts to think in comics. And, and situations will suggest themselves, or the arc of a comic will suggest itself. And so then... I have to figure out how to make it into a comic, and oftentimes if it requires a very particular image, then I have to find that image, and that's the frustrating part. Whereas if I, if I drew my comic like a regular person, then I could just draw a doctor or whatever, instead of paging through thousands of pages of books looking for a picture of a doctor. Do you literally decide on some kind of situation and then go to the bookshelves and just start paging sometimes yeah um it's it's not often and now i mean i've been doing this for a little over five years now so i think i have a pretty good handle on the kind of stuff i have and where it lives and not everything is scanned at every given time because it's just a big you know to a lot of labor involved there and i get new stuff all the time too so i don't I'll always have it cataloged but there are definitely times where it's like 
I'll write down a joke in my little notebook, and it's like, man, this would be really cool and really funny, and it just requires a teacher in a classroom and this and that. And then I'll just I'll have to shelve it because I just I don't have a teacher in the classroom. And what I've been doing as much as I can, like if I think the joke is really worth it, I'll build it. I'll build the scene. And a lot of the scenes that are more unusual in in the strip are ones that I've created from component images. Um, and hopefully, if I've done like, my, wait, give me give me an example. All right. Well, there's um, a husband and wife or, or a, a couple of some kind talking about. Um, she's defending her thesis is the premise, and the guy's like, "Oh, what are you defending it against? Are you defending it against communists, pirates, or ninjas, or ninjas on unicycles?" And she says, "Yes, it's ninjas on unicycles. Now go away." And then in the final panel, she is in fact fighting a ninja on a unicycle. <laughs> and so what I had to do was build a ninja on a unicycle from a piece of like a wheel from a bicycle and then different limbs of different uh, characters from different I- illustrations and basically assemble it like a mannequin. And if I've done my job, then it looks like it's a Victorian engraving of a ninja on the unicycle. And if that surprises the reader, then it, it, it sort of makes it funnier for the verisimilitude. In some cases also, there's, uh, there's this quality with the illustrations that because they are um, almost definitionally sort of happenstantial. Uh, they're usually just sort of a vehicle for the words that when elements of the illustration surprisingly come into play, a lot of times humor can, can be born out of that. Sure, I, and I think that's something that differentiates uh, my work from, from a more traditional comic strip in that if you were to see a comic strip in the newspaper and it's typically drawn in a very simple style, but in one panel there's a vase for no reason then you think, well, that vase is going to come into play. And so all of a sudden in the third panel, when the vase comes to life or whatever happens, it's like, okay, well, now I know why it was there. But in my strip, there could legitimately be things there for no reason because they're just part of the source illustration. So it almost gives me, I, I can almost work undercover. When something in the background springs to life, it's very surprising. And I think that's something that I can leverage in a certain way that, that maybe other artists can't. Let me ask you this question. Your your strip runs in uh, a, a variety of college newspapers and also in the print edition of The Onion. But it really lives on the Internet, on the website. That's right. Did you conceive it in, in that way? Was did was this something that you thought you were going to be running in, you know, The Stranger in Seattle and the L.A. Weekly here in Los Angeles, or something that you thought would live on, live on the web when you invented it? It was nothing that premeditated. And I'm, I'm very happy that it's found a home in, in print and The Onion, like you said, and in some other papers. But um, there's a big scene, or there's a... There's a community now of, of web comics that live only on the web that was something that I had no idea even existed and didn't even really exist when I started it. Uh, my first impulse was just, I'm going to make something cool and the only place I'm going to ever show it to anybody is, is the web because otherwise, what are you going to do? Show it to your friends and then you're just done. So the web was, was just a, a vehicle for, if I'm going to do this cool thing that I think is funny, then I want to be able to show it to people. And then over time, um, other people have had the same idea over the last you know several years and this whole thing called web comics has come into being that it didn't used to. And so now there is, you know, there are business models and there are advertising models and there are merchandising models that have come into being because people like me uh, and people that came before me have decided to turn this into a whole career and into a whole art form that, that never used to be. And in many cases, these web comics are, are foregoing print um, and, taking advantage of the unique position that, that the web affords of being able to reach the consumer very directly, reach the audience in a one-on-one fashion that you can't get with a, with a printed newspaper. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is David Malky, the creator of the webcomic series Wondermark. 
We'll have more with David in just a minute. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Maximum Fun is coming to San Francisco in January. You can catch The Sound of Young America live as part of SF Sketchfest at Cobb's Comedy Club on January 23rd with special guests including the Casper Hauser Comedy Group and Sean Cullen. As if that wasn't enough, you can catch the Monsters of Podcasting, that's Jordan Jesse Go, and you look nice today, that very same weekend at the Eureka Theater. They're just two of the dozens of amazing shows at this year's SF Sketchfest including the Upright Citizens Brigade, The State, and our podcasting pals Jimmy Pardo and Matt Belknap with Never Not Funny Live. Get your tickets now at sfsketchfest.com. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is David Malky, creator of the webcomic series Wondermark. How do you think of the strip playing with people's expectations about comics that have been built up over, you know, uh, 75 years of uh, uh, Peanuts and and Lulu and, and so forth. I really like that what I do is distinctive. And I have a great, great respect for, for the longstanding comic strip tradition. But the newspaper syndicate editors that I've, I've spoken with, um, you know, for like the regular mainstream papers, have told me this will never fly in a paper. And they only bothered to tell me that after I had already been successful on the web. And so it's almost like... That's great, but this is now something different. This is now something that doesn't have to follow those same rules and strictures that the printed newspaper page has imposed over the course of decades. Well, this is something where we can sort of wipe the slate clean and just do whatever we want. At the same time, though, you are still using this very specific format that was developed in this in this sure. medium of the newspaper funny page. And, and also, you're... Um, you're using, you're quite literally using printed material to create it. Well, I think in terms of the format, in terms of like the, the rectangular looking, you know, three or four panel structure, that's the vernacular of the American comic strip. And that's in that form, it's easy for people to know what it is when they look at it. And, and my thing, maybe more than some others, it's not immediately apparent that this is a joke or it's a gag strip. You know, it might seem to someone who doesn't know the writing, that's like, oh, what's this old-timey-looking thing? And maybe it's stuffy-looking or whatever. But by using that vernacular of the word balloons and the panel borders and the whole deal, it, it sort of sets the stage for the tone of the, of the piece. And I think there are a lot of people that have done very well on the web with breaking those borders and either using color or animation or different things in different ways that can never be reproduced in print. Um, what I'm doing is deliberately speaking the language of the print comic so that people can come to it with with the expectation of oh cool a comic was it a conscious choice to to make this a um to make this a gag strip a, a strip without uh without continuity um or, or was it just dictated by the by the nature of the thing that you you know you can't have a lifetime of pictures of the same dude yeah i think that's been i mean that's that's a very real real um concern it would be virtually impossible for me to make a, a long-form story out of this, uh, with th- some minor exceptions, because there are, I found that there are a lot of, of 
illustrators in that period that tended to draw basically the same guy. It's a guy with a mustache and wearing like a black suit. And, and so, in fact, in... Um, oh, you're talking about an old-timey guy. Right, yeah, exactly. He's got a top hat. You've seen him before. And It's the, weird how those illustrators were always drawing old-timey guys. <laughs> right. Come on, let's get it together. Right, come on. Um, and so uh, when I noticed that, I was able to put together like an eight-page graphic novel-type story, which is, which is reproduced in the book. And... Um, it sort of uses multiple angles of the same character as if, you know, or, or multiple, multiple illustrations of what look like the same character to create a, a narrative. But in terms of the strip, you know, that's a very, um, it's a limitation that, that means that, yeah, I, I, I probably have to start from scratch every single time. And it's not a conscious decision that I made to do a gag strip, but now that I am doing it, I find that I like it just fine. Outside of the aesthetics, what do you think ties the strips together? Well, I... I'd like to think that it's because there's no story. Then the only thing that that brings people back for the next installment must be because they think I'm funny. Um, I, I, I certainly would would hope that's the case. I, I I try and write the strip in a way that I would want to read it, which is to say, I try not to talk down to the audience. I try to talk about things that that maybe I, I haven't seen addressed. If it's a strip about social commentary, or I, I I don't worry about being too weird. If if there's a particular strip that I think is is kind of out there. So I found that the more experiments and the more sort of boundaries that I flex in terms of in terms of the the content, the people that stick with me through all that are the people that are kind of plugged into whatever little zone I've carved out for myself, and 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 they tend to stick with me through anything. You also have a career as a freelance uh, film editor, including editing feature film trailers. That's right. Do you feel like there's resonance between that job and this job at creating this comic strip? I think in both cases, I'm taking something that works. I'm taking pieces of a larger whole and assembling them into something new and disparate. And it's sort of a different job than creating from scratch, for sure. It's it's the idea of, of recontextualizing something that's existing and inventing new juxtapositions for it. I don't know if working on one has improved my skill at the other or vice versa, or if it's just the way I'm wired creatively to be able to see that kind of connection uh, in a way that informs both pursuits. But, um, but I definitely think that there are... You could probably draw parallels between anything. Like if I was a garbage man, you'd say, hey, do you think garbage man, uh, being a garbage man forms a strip? Probably. There's some way that it probably does. But in this case, um, yes. I, I took this class in college at UC Santa Cruz called... It was called Working in Film and Television, and, and it, in, in it, alumni, UC Santa Cruz alumni came back that worked in the film and television industry and lectured us. One of the few successful uh, UC Santa Cruz graduates, uh, certainly in the, in the entertainment field, but just in general, <laughs> um, was a marketing guy for a major movie company. And one of the things he talked about was the way that Film marketing is often less about sort of boiling down the story of a film into something that can be marketed in the length of a trailer or a television commercial or a poster, and more about almost creating a story. Um, and he gave the the example that he gave was something that he'd worked on, the horrible, horrible film uh, Kangaroo Jack, which was almost not released into theaters until they had the idea 
to present it as something completely different right, from right. how it was originally right. intended. Um, the thing about movie trailers and movie marketing in general is that it's all heavily reliant on market research and focus groups, like like anything with that much money at stake is. And so the the executives um, that create movie trailers and, and advertisements are, are basically beholden to those numbers because otherwise... If it fails, they have no recourse. It's something besides that, taking responsibility for it themselves. Right, but don't be silly. Yeah. <laughs> so, and and I, I've worked for for advertising. The advertising agencies that I, I work for are are contracted by the studios. So the studios are the ones that make the decisions, and and um, the people that work at my company, including myself, are the basically the house painters that say, okay, you want the you want a house pink? Okay, here's a pink house. Um, it's 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 almost it's basically just contract work, and so. Um, all those decisions are designed to create something, I mean, as we know, that appeals to the, the widest number of people at, in the widest number of situations. That's just how mass, mass media works. But oftentimes, when you can't distill a two-hour movie into two minutes and 30 seconds and make it have any resonance, then all you're left with is you have to use the pieces to create something that approximates the final product so that people will think, okay, well, I kind of like that. Or failing that something that looks like something the audience would like, even if it's not the thing that you're marketing. And in fact, there are, I've heard more than one marketing person say, boy, I hate that the production department gives us movies that are impossible to market. And the aims of marketing and the aims of filmmakers are, they're just different because they're creating different products. I think it's interesting you, you mentioned this, folks saying we want a pink house and, and you having this sort of craftsmanship of painting the house pink in creating marketing materials. Um, in your webcomics career, you're uh, you're doing exactly the opposite. You're the sole responsible party, and um, I, I certainly know from the podcast of this show that internet audiences are very deeply and powerfully engaged with their favorite things. Are, is that ever a burden to you or scary to you that you that you're the responsible party here, and and you have to create something that fits in in some way with the, your audience's expectations? I would definitely be lying if I said it wasn't at times nerve-wracking. But I think, I mean, in your experience, I, I have to imagine that you would agree that the benefits from, from that are, are, are worth it in every way because when you succeed, it means that you have also succeeded on your own terms. Plus the treasure baths, which are yeah, fantastic. Exactly. I, I love bathing in gold, and that's something that I'll just never get used to if I ever quit this job. The idea that that whatever you do is on your own shoulders means that it makes your failures horrifying, just horrifying, but it makes your successes just so much sweeter. And um, there are people that have more failures than successes, and so they find it's not worth it, and it's easy just to go do a job where you don't have to think. In fact, this most recent... Um, I mean, we've been working on the, on the comic pretty much full-time all this year with brief periods going back to work for marketing agencies here and there. And this last time I went back, uh, was a couple months ago to work on on the movie Milk and also Burn After Reading. I did TV commercials for those, and it had, I had a great time because I could spend eight, nine, ten hours a day not thinking about anything. They would give me a list of things to say and say, "This TV spot needs these changes, these changes, and these changes," and I could turn my brain off for like nine hours, and it was really like a vacation for me. So I think there are definitely advantages to to having that sort of a life too. But I don't think. For someone as, as, as creative as, as myself or you or, or someone else that, that works, that has had the taste of this direct satisfaction that comes from working with an audience on the internet, 
you know, it's, it's hard to give that up too, because it's, it's really cool when it works. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. It's been my pleasure. David Malky uh, with a space and then an exclamation mark is uh, the author of Beards of Our Forefathers. It's a collection of his comic strip, Wondermark, which is on the internet at wondermark.com. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music, written and performed by Dan Grayson, with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. The show edited by Nick White. My email address, jesse at MaximumFun.org. I think that pretty much covers all the bases. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.